Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast. Conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here, and let's just start with this. Anton, you're the man. Anton is our newest Patreon supporter. Just as a reminder, you can go to patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast and support the show. Now, what do you get? Well, you could have asked our guest this week any question you wanted. In fact, you can ask any of our guests a question. That's what you get for as little as $2 a month. Oh, and you can get ad-free episodes sent straight to your smartphone, just like any other podcast. Now, I know what you're thinking, Chris, wow, you're coming out hot. You're firing off the uh, Patreon pitch rather quickly. Well, you know what? This is damn good content, and I think you should support us. Patreon.com slash smart people podcast. All right. Look, partly I'm just feeling a little cocky because our guest this week, I mean, again, it's another person that if you would have told me five years ago, we were going to have him on the show. I'd, I'd kind of think it's crazy. Now, maybe that's just because I'm a podcaster, but hey, I respect the best in the business. And this week we have perhaps the best in the business. Our guest this week is none other than Guy Raz. You have probably heard of Guy before if you've ever listened to TED Radio Hour or the podcast called How I Built This. Guy Raz is the creator and host of some incredible podcasts, including How I Built This, Wisdom from the Top, and The Rewind on Spotify. He's also the co-creator of the acclaimed podcast TED Radio Hour and the children's program Wow in the World. He received the Edward R. Murrow Award the Daniel Shore Journalism Prize, the National Headliner Award, 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 award. Look, Guy, he's just one of those people who is just part of the industry. He's a hell of a journalist, and his podcasts are amazing. And even more so, I was really happy to have him on because, one, we get to nerd out about asking questions. You know, something I've been doing for over a decade. Guy has been an inspiration for me. I want to know, how does he pull out the best in guests? How does he ask questions? What does he think about journalism? So for all you podcast diehards, this is awesome. Additionally, How I Built This is actually one of my favorite podcasts, and Guy has a new book out called How I Built This, The Unexpected Paths to Success from the World's Most Inspiring Entrepreneurs. 
And as I look at this book, I'm actually holding it in my hand. It really, really motivates me because I can just replace the How I Built This title with Smart People Podcast. We need a book. I mean, we really do. Think about it. Almost 400 episodes. Think of all the gold. Is that something you'd be interested in? Shoot me a note. Chris at smartpeoplepodcast.com. All right, let's turn it over to our amazing guest, Guy Raz, as we talk about his new book and his podcast, specifically, How I Built This, The Unexpected Paths to Success from the World's Most Inspiring Entrepreneurs. Enjoy. All right, Guy, well, thanks so much for being on the show. Um, Thank you for having me. I know it's a long uh, journey of of marketing this new book, but I appreciate making the time. And we were kind of just discussing this, but I'm I'm curious, you know, what has it been like being on the other end of the microphone? You know, it's funny because I don't know if I would want to interview me because sometimes I think I'm very long winded, and my stories can go on and on and on. But I I have to say it's um it's 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 fun. You know, it's been fun. Um, and, and challenging because normally I'm asking people about their lives. And of course I share details about my life and, um, when I interview people, but not, not in any great depth. And here I am talking about myself and it's not something that I'm, I'm particularly used to or entirely comfortable with, but I always tell people that they need to test their comfort levels all the time and get out of their comfort zones all the time. So here I am following my own advice. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm really glad you mentioned that about the comfort level uh, of not necessarily wanting to talk about yourself or I'm curious, like, have you always felt like that is, is if somebody said, you know, guy, I need you to be the center of attention here. What does that make you feel? It makes me feel like that's almost an impossibility. <laughs> um, you know, I, I remember years and years ago, I read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, which which hasn't really helped me win friends and influence people. But it, it there is a part of that book that's really so true, which is if you want, if you want people to be interested in you, ask them about them mm-hmm. and uh, ask people lots of questions about them. And that's sort of been my thing. You know, I, I'm really interested in other people. Um, and so I have, you know, for a variety of reasons, always been kind of reluctant to talk about myself, not, not because I've, I have anything to hide, but I think because I, for some reason I've, I felt that there was, um, I don't know if, if narcissism is the right word, but um, like a sort of a, a sort of a self-indulgence, you know, and I understand that that's, that might be a little bit extra, sort of an extreme um, perspective. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of learning to understand that I need to do more of that. Um, the other side to it is that, you know, in my, in my private life, in my non-public life, when I'm not on, I'm on the podcast or I'm not, you know, um, you know, on television or whatever, um, and I'm just hanging out with people I know, um, they're not, you know, most of them are not well known. And I'm, I try to be very mindful and very cognizant of the fact that, um, it, you know, in, in my personal life with friends and others and family, um, that, that the focus should not be on me because in my professional life, the focus is on me. Mm. And so I try and compensate for that in my, certainly in my private life to take it off of me. That's interesting because given what you do, right? So hosting podcasts and things like that, I would consider the thing you are best at is definitely like weaving a narrative, storytelling, but it is also highlighting others, right? So whether that be TED Radio Hour, How I Built This, it's kind of highlighting that other person's journey successes. So but in your mind, it still does sometimes feel like, yes, but I am at the center of it professionally. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. I think so. That's right. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm the guide and I'm, I'm the host and I'm pulling out and, and my personality comes through on the show. You know, who I Absolutely. like the, the, I like to sort of say the, the best version of myself is who I am on my shows because that's, I'm not that person all of the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but I mm-hmm. try to be that person all as, as 
as often as possible because that's that is who I am when I'm at my best. And right. so it is I you know I still am the host. I still am um a focus of of the listener's ear and mm-hmm. um and and I I you know I'm I'm sort of it's taken me decades to get comfortable with that you know mm-hmm. um but but now that's that's the reality and i and i i i appreciate it. i appreciate that listeners um really like what i do they like me and they like the show and they like um the ideas that i bring out of people and it's very meaningful to know that um i have that effect on on listeners and impact on people and i i'm incredibly grateful for it yeah it is that impact and i mean the it, i think this phrase or idea gets overused, but it's really true. The intimacy of podcasting is, in my opinion, unparalleled as it relates to any other content area. Do you, how do you feel about that? When I, years ago, um, I started out in radio. I started out as a radio reporter um, at NPR. And about four years into my time at NPR, I was poached by CNN. I was, was a young reporter. This is now 15 years ago, 16 years ago. And I went to CNN. It was this big, glamorous job. You know, I was a foreign correspondent for NPR, but now I'm a foreign correspondent for CNN. And lots of people had no idea what happened to me. And, and, and you know, and I was on television, right? And the reason, the reason I think why is because listeners or viewers, uh, viewers of television don't have that same intimate relationship with the the reporter or the the host that they do with with radio hosts you know the the ear the, there's a there's a very intimate connection that you develop when you're listening to somebody and you're not looking at them you know it's why because our brains process most of our brain power is used to process visuals right, right. like a huge percentage of our brain is this incredible processing computer that allows us to look left and right and front and back and instantly see billions of pixels of images, right? Like we're, we're better than any computer, right? When it comes to processing just images and that enables us to pick up, you know, um, nonverbal communication, like, um, the, a micro movement in someone's facial muscles. Mm -hmm. And you can, you can know a lot about a person or you can understand what they're trying to convey to you even, not not just through the words that they're using, but through the way that their face is moving. So we focus on that. The thing is, is that our voices also convey many of those same nonverbal communication signals. You know, it could be a pause, it could be a cadence, it could be um, the, the the pace of of your speech. It could be a, a, a sort of an almost you know inaudible hint or tick in in your voice but when you're listening you pick up on those things Mm -hmm. it's it's sort of like when you were a kid and you had a phone conversation with a friend and you maybe had you had that phone in your house with a long cord and you'd walk down the hallway to a closet in your house and sit in that dark closet and talk to your friend those were some of the most intimate conversations i had as a kid that it's a little bit like radio and it's why i think we're able to we uh, say radio it's audio podcasting right. it's why we're able to develop those connections and 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 intimate this intimate you know bond with the people who who listen to us and you know very few people in this medium and in any medium have the recognition from an uh, audio standpoint that you do i mean it's really eerie talking to you conversationally because of, and I know you hear this all the time, even I get it right. Like, because people have associated you with your voice for so long that it, it becomes its own persona. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I I think that, um, I think that, and it's funny because my voice, I never saw my voice as a strong suit in any way. You know, when I came to NPR in the, in the 1990s, the voices that you wanted to replicate were like Bob Edwards, you know, you're yep. listening to Morning Edition or, or, or Robert Siegel, you know, <laughs> um, you know, my hero was no Adams. 
who has just a, had a he's 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 not in radio anymore, but he's wonderful um, Kentucky lilt, you know, just a beautiful voice, but also a deep voice. And I didn't have that, you know. I never, I never felt like I could bring a voice, just the sound, to the radio. And in fact, when I when I became the host of of All Things Considered in two thousand nine. You know, I occasionally would have, or more than occasionally, would have run-ins with with news managers. You know, who were in more powerful positions because traditionally, the way it worked at NPR was, you know, the host would be handed a script or kind of would be kind of told what to do by news managers, producers, and and, and others, and that was the way it worked. And I didn't, I didn't, that didn't make sense to me. You know, I, I said, look. You've hired me to be the host of the show for my ideas because if you hired me for my voice alone, you wouldn't pick me. I don't <laughs> have a great voice. I am not Bob Edwards. You know, I don't have this beautiful, booming voice, but I have a lot of really good ideas and I have a real clear sense of what I want to do with this show. And that was my approach. I mean, it, it created some friction, a lot of friction actually over, over the years I hosted that show, but it, it just – it didn't make sense to me that you would have me on as the host of the show for my voice because I never thought it was particularly good. And so I always felt like I had to compensate with with my ideas or my writing or my words because my voice just wasn't wasn't up to snuff. Well, I have to say on behalf of all um, people creating audio content around the world who don't have that booming baritone, you know, we appreciate it. I think you have uh, played a large role in normalizing the fact that you can own your your voice or your audible persona uh, in different ways other than the very standard thing. So it's it's I think it's a um, you know it's a it's a noble thing that you've done for many in the profession. <laughs> I want to I want to get back to one thing you said I, I thought was really fascinating. You said you know on air if we want to call it that you are oftentimes the best version or versions of yourself. What what do you think those things are? I think those things are being incredibly fascinated by somebody else's life story. Um, I think when I'm at my best, I'm very empathetic. Um, I'm very curious. And I'm, I'm, I'm just really enjoying learning about someone's life, which in in almost every way is actually a wonderful, just a wonderful experience and a very deep and intimate experience to have with somebody when you, when you are interrogating, not interrogating, but when you're asking them questions about their, their life, their life, you know, intimate, um, personal questions that are, that that force them to go back in time and to relive moments, not not necessarily traumatic moments, but moments in their life that were meaningful or important or or milestones. And I, you know, I'm 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 on that journey with them. I'm in the I'm in the cockpit. I'm in the cockpit of their brain. You know, I'm I'm I want to rediscover the story with them even though i know a lot about the story ahead of time cuz i do a lot of research i'm there to 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 help guide them through it and also to cheer them on you know it's almost like like going back in time with them and and reliving the journey with them um and that's that's when i'm you know when i'm when i'm really at my best and i and i'm often at my best in you know in those situations because I'm so invested in in that person's story and journey, um, and and I'm also fully present. You know, it's hard to be present when you are in a room full of people, or you are. You know, if I'm speaking to thousands of people in in a you know in a public venue or doing a live show in front of thousands of people, but when it's just you and somebody else. I can be so present and when I'm really present and I'm focused on that person's story, it's, it's sort of like, it's like a gift, you know, it's when you're listening to somebody, um, you are both receiving 
but you're also giving because you're showing respect for for their journey. That's a it's a fantastic way of putting it. And I feel like in in a in a fairly small way I can definitely understand where you're coming from, especially from the skill you mentioned, right? Just being enamored with people. I I never knew that that was a quality that not everyone had, right? So I always thought of course I want to learn everything there is about this person. I remember talking to my mom, both of us have that in common where it's like, and my dad doesn't, where uh, if we go up to somebody, they can say something and instantly, genuinely, all we care about is what they have to say, not what we have to say. And I think it, it comes through in, you know, in this medium really well. On the flip side, and you mentioned this earlier, it can stifle, I think, growth and opportunity because, and you mentioned this, right? Um, if that's your, your point of view or a strong character trait, it's hard to then go out and promote yourself or, or, or give what you have to the world. Uh, what advice do you have to people who might fall into this category of like, I, I don't know if I can uh, go out and add value or it feels egotistical to, to put my ideas or my thoughts out to the world? You know, I'd rather sit behind the proverbial microphone. You know, I think that it's, it comes with time and, and, and practice. Look, we live in a, in a moment in history where um, narcissism is kind of the default position, right? That, that, you know, instant TikTok stars and, and social media influencers are, um, you know, that's sort of the order of the day. And there's no, sh and, and for many of them, there's no shame in being self-promotional, right? And, and I think it's also a generational thing. I'm in my 40s. My generation really kind of frowned on self-promotion. It was not seen as something that you do. Um, I've come to understand that there, there's also this kind of um, exaggeration of what it means to be self-promotional. You know, um, in my case, um, I've come to, I've sort of made peace and come to um, accept that I can talk, I can talk about myself or ideas that I have or my, you know, my perceptions of the world or whatever, whatever it might be. I, I'm happy to weigh in on things. And and part of that really just comes from just just living life, you know, being in my in my mid forties and 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 having interviewed thousands of people and absorbed thousands and thousands of ideas um, and read lots of things that I've become more comfortable weighing in and coming into the arena because I feel um, I feel more prepared for it. You know, I think um, there was a time in my life where I just thought, well. What can I offer? But you know, with just with with the passage of time and 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 you know, and gaining experience in life, you naturally begin to understand that there are things you have to offer. You know, in my case, I I was a foreign correspondent. I covered you know forty five countries and and seven wars, and have interviewed thousands of people around the world, and have seen incredible things. And so. As I've become older and have been able to really appreciate that and to reflect on it, it's become easier for me to, you know, to 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 understand that when I do talk about these things, it's not it's not narcissistic. It's 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 uh, it, you know it's it's me hopefully making a contribution. Right, and I think there's it's also extremely logical, right? So I can sit here and say. Oh, you know, it, it's, you know, it makes sense for guy, but it doesn't make sense for me, for example. But that logic holds up to some extent, right? I think to your point, it holds up until you actually have something valuable to add. However, who defines that value? You know, and that's something I've, I've spent a long time thinking of to your point, right? Take TikTok, like to me, zero value. And don't even don't have the app, don't know anything really about it, don't care. But that that means although that's my opinion, there are plenty of people that if somebody stopped sharing on TikTok, you know, there are millions, they they'd be really upset by that. So it's an interesting kind of dynamic, I think a, a, an individualized journey to say when 
do I feel ready to share what I know? And then can I do it or am I doing it in a way that feels genuine? I think what gets tough is a lot of people sitting, seeing those who are self-promotional or narcissistic, frankly, um, getting a lot of the coverage and even by societal standards, getting the, you know, um, pillars of success or getting the things mm. of success, right? Yeah. You know, and, and I think that's right. And But I also think that we really, our society puts a lot of pressure on people to be extroverted, to put themselves out there. And a lot of people just don't want to do that, you know, and I understand that. I mean, think about how many times in your life when you were a kid or in, in school, there was a talent show, okay? Or you you went to a summer camp and there was a talent show. Well, it's a it's a very narrowly defined thing because usually talent shows were kids who could dance, kids who could sing, or uh, kids who could act, and that was or play an instrument, and that was the talent show, or you know make stand up and present or make it make you know do a comedy routine. So talent really was defined as entertainment, you know, has been defined as entertainment. But but other you know other people have talents that you can't just you can't just put on a stage at a talent show you know like somebody might be an incredible baker or they can produce these beautiful cakes with this like intricate fondant you know that you can't you can't go on stage at a talent show and show that off so I also think that we we kind of put a lot of pressure on ourselves to participate sometimes when. We're not always comfortable doing so. I, I think part of part of what what makes you know what makes our, our culture so complicated is this is this focus on this kind of performative this kind of performative aspect to to to, to being out in the world. Um, but the reality is, look, uh, the, and by the way, I say this from experience. I mean, a lot of people that I've interviewed me and also are introverted. We're natural introverts. I think what, what I've learned is that, um, and I hope people here listening to this can, can sort of take something, take something from this, which is being an introvert doesn't necessarily mean you are condemned to a life of shyness and, and, and quiet and solitude. It, but it doesn't mean that you have to be out there performing all the time. It means that you can decide how you want to be and present. Um, but it's it's not one or the other. You know, I I think that that we all have the capacity to to decide how we want how we want to engage in in any in any arena or in any forum. Um, so, so yeah. Well, it's real. This just hit me, but it's really fascinating talking to you about this because you not only kind of are that person, right? Public facing, um, reaching millions and millions of people all over the world, but you also talk to people who have found uh, exponential success, right? So, as of course, we're going to get into how I built this, but the, some of the world's greatest entrepreneurs. And what I've, I mean, I think I finally figured this out right around now in my late thirties. Um, but there's this definition of success that we can either adopt from societal standards or we can cultivate from the inside out. And I feel like a lot of the performative aspects of, of our lives often come when we're trying to achieve that external vision of success instead of internal. Um, I'll give you an example. I was listening to a podcast where the guy, there was a guy he created, I think it was uh, biz now or something like that. And he was one of the first people who's like really wealthy who I've heard flat out say, we should stop glamorizing, uh, you know, the, the outwardly successful. And we should start really glamorizing the, you know, content homeowner or homemaker who raised a good family and was happy and like went about their days in joy. 
And I just find that message doesn't get out there so much. So this long-winded kind of diatribe I'm going on is really to ask you, given that you are a public-facing figure and you interview some people who have you know, received such fame, how do we balance this? We want the results that often come from the performative aspects, but it might not be in our nature or it might not even be something we really want to do. But we want the results that are oftentimes attributed to that, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, look, I I think that it's very hard to control what what our culture decides to focus on and what it decides to ignore. I mean, think about how many flash in the pan celebrities have have come and gone in in your lifetime or the lifetime of anyone listening, right? That that you don't that occasionally you'll remember their name and then you'll look them up on Wikipedia to see whatever happened to them. I, I think that the reality is most of the people who are happiest are people we don't hear about, we don't know about. Um, and while I agree with the idea that wouldn't it be great if we highlighted those people, human you know, human nature just doesn't work that way. I mean, probably since pre-Neolithic times, humans have focused on the unusual or the extraordinary or the different person. You know, there's um there, there's a famous marketing marketing expert named Seth Godin and he 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 focuses on extraordinary things. He's got this this uh, theory called the purple cow theory which is if you're driving, you know, through the countryside and you see a cow in a pasture, you're not going to pay any attention to that cow. You're not going to stop your car. But if you are driving through the countryside and you see a purple cow in a pasture, you are going to stop your car and tell all your friends about it because that is an extraordinary thing, you know? And I think that's how human nature is when it comes to focusing on achievement. He, here's the thing, though. The, the reality is that financial wealth and financial success, we know um, there's, a, there's sort of a limit to what it can do for your happiness. I mean, um, financial security certainly can reduce stress. Um, but the reality is that most of the people that I've come across in my life who are happy and stable and, um, you know, have strong, um, you know, have, have, a, have built up strong families and so on, are people who aren't incredibly wealthy or aren't incredibly, you know, um, you know, yeah, I mean, who, who, I mean, a good example is Sal Khan. And Sal Khan, he, while he's famous and well known, um, he started Khan Academy. You know, Sal Khan graduated MIT with, with two undergraduate degrees and a master's degree in four years and went to Harvard Business School. And many of his, and, and was recruited by top hedge funds because he's a math genius. Most of many of his friends from Harvard Business School went on to become millionaires and billionaires. And Sal Khan decided to start the Khan Academy, a nonprofit free platform that allows anybody to get educated anytime, anywhere around the world. And, you know, he's perfectly comfortable. He gets paid a decent salary, but he's certainly not, you know, wealthy um, by the standards of his classmates. And yet I would argue that Sal Khan probably is one of the happiest people. I've I've ever interviewed, you know. I mean, he has an incredibly wonderful partner and 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 ch and three children and and gets a lot of meaning out of what he, you know, out of what he does. I, I would say the same for me, you know. I I I interview incredibly wealthy people. Um, I I feel incredibly um, fulfilled because I can. I can give my listeners these stories. I can inspire people with the stories that I'm telling. Um, the shows that I do mean a lot to people, and that means a lot to me. I, I mean, I get more from that probably than they do. When people write to me and say, you know, I, I, I really wanted to shut down my business because I felt like I was failing and your show kept me going. Like I listened to this episode and you asked this person about this crisis and I was like, that's me. When I hear that, that, that is so meaningful to me. I can't, I can't imagine doing 
you know, a more meaningful job. I mean, of course, there are more more meaningful jobs than than, than doing podcasts, but for me, it it really is important. And so, I, you know, I believe that that most people really do find meaning and purpose in things that are not that are not monetized. Let's take a quick break for this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. I got my first cell phone with one of the big wireless providers mm, 20, 25 years ago. And I've honestly hated my monthly bill ever since. But then I discovered there's another option that could give me the premium service I'm used to at a fraction of the cost. I could cut my wireless bill down to just 15 bucks a month and save hundreds of dollars by switching to Mint Mobile. For anyone out there who's looking to save without sacrificing service, switching to Mint Mobile is a no-brainer. For customers that hate their wireless bill, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. By going online only and eliminating the traditional cost of retail, Mint Mobile can pass significant savings on to you. Every plan comes with unlimited nationwide talk and text plus crazy fast 4G LTE. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their seven-day money-back guarantee. Switch to Mint Mobile today and get premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com smart. That's mintmobile.com smart. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com smart. And now back to the episode. I completely agree, but I feel like that is a lesson hard learned. Did you ever struggle with that? Or were you always kind of clear on your values, on, you know, what you ranked higher than money or, I don't know, fame or something like that? Or was it something like, because for me personally, it's, and I think for many people listening, that's really why I'm, I'm drilling in on this it's hard to know that, you know, to, to actually logically know, like, I don't need, you know, all this money to be happier. I don't need this recognition. I don't need to be on magazines or billboards or whatever. Uh, but yet still go for it. Was that something that you ever struggle with? Or were you like, no, I'm, I'm good with this. I, I, I want to do something I enjoy and the rest let it be. Oh, sure. I struggled with it. I think early in my career, I was really, it was, you know, becoming well-known for what I do as a reporter was important to me. Um, I think that, you know, as I progressed in my career, it it was important to me that, um, yeah, that I, um, you know, that I I, I get that outward um, validation. I think what really changed it for me was when I, when I had my first child, um, because my ambitions really changed, you know, it was, it, it, it was, it's hard for me to explain it, but I'll, I'll try that child who came into my life, all of a sudden was clear to me that my life, the purpose of my life was to help this child learn to survive as an adult, you know, it's this very primitive instinct in us. And it was so, I just had so much clarity about it that it didn't, it, it, as strange as it sounds, it didn't matter to me what I did professionally. And my professional ambitions really changed. Um, you know, in, in some ways, I became far less ambitious, even though my career exploded and prospered and, and blossomed after the birth of my, my, my first son and then my second son. But I think in part because I stopped caring so much, stopped worrying so much. I stopped focusing on things like um, outward recognition and external validation because I had these humans that I was now responsible for, for the rest of my life. Um, you know, and the rest, and, and, and that, that just gave me an incredible focus which I'm so grateful for. I'm incredibly grateful for because I think without that, I I might, you know, might still be focused on some of those things today. Yeah, it's a great point. It adds a lot of 
clarity. Like you said, I've got a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And I, I, me and my wife joke before my kids were born, I was like, how did I do all these things? She was like, what do you mean? How'd you do them? You never left your office. And I was like, oh, that that's right. <laughs> that's right. You know, but to your point, you're then kind of just, I, I, at least I clearly remember look at my first son and go, wait, I created this. And I was like enamored by the miracle. I don't know. It's a, it's a weird thing. I know what you're saying and trying to put words to it. You obviously do it eloquently because that's what you do. And we've kind of tiptoed around this. I, I want to talk to you. We've been talking about your experiences interviewing some incredible people, many of which you've interviewed on your podcast, How I Built This. And now um, it's become a book and a fascinating book, by the way. Um, the subtitle is The Unexpected Paths to Success from the World's Most Inspiring Entrepreneurs. One of the things I just want to credit you with, uh, as somebody who's struggling with it currently, I think it's hard sometimes to take a podcast with hundreds of people's stories and then put it into a book that is not just a regurgitation of their stories. And it's also not just a linear progression of occurrences, but it's a narrative that is probably more inspirational than educational. And I'm curious, did you know from the beginning that the podcast and now the book, um, was was probably going to resonate because of its inspirational qualities? Or did you think people would be just as or more interested in the actual step-by-step processes of entrepreneurs? Well, I actually think they're connected. I think that um, inspirational stories um, are almost always connected to very real, pragmatic, practical lessons. Because I'm not talking about miracles here. You know, I'm not... This is not a religious program, right? How I Built This is a show about ordinary people who accomplish extraordinary things. And, and the, the, the underlying message of the show and, and the book is there's no difference between them and you. It's we are all Clark Kent's. And, and the difference is that some of us go into the phone booth and put on the cape. And so what I really wanted the show to be and what I want it to be t- to this day and what I want the book to be – is a guide for for the the people who are not naturally going to walk into the phone booth for the people who kind of need a, a push to be reminded that you can actually do this and in order to do that you need to see how other people did it and those stories and those lessons are incredibly inspiring i mean the book to me and the show to me is 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 no different except i think better in some cases than a business school course. It's it's a free MBA because if you go to business school today, the way you learn about business is through case studies. Right. And what we do is the same thing, I think just better and in and, and, and a deeper way, in a more meaningful way. And you don't have to pay a hundred thousand bucks a year for it. You know, um, the show is free, the book is twenty bucks. But it's really designed to do both things, to show you very practical ways that people went about finding funding for their businesses, coming up with ideas, how people researched. You know, that because look, building a business, the easiest part of building a business, the absolute easiest thing you can do when you want to build a business is come up with the idea in your mind and imagine yep. it out in the world. That's the the the, the genesis of your business is the easiest part. Everything after that is hard, really hard, because you actually have to pull that thing from your brain, that vision, and put it on paper, and then convince people to buy your product, and then find a a manufacturer that will make it, and find money to fund it, and distribute it, and, and then, you know, and then you're not done. Then you got to grow it and scale it. And it's a long, long journey. It's a never ending journey. Even even incredibly successful entrepreneurs have sleepless nights. So the, that that's really how I see it. You know, I, I want people to be inspired by the show and the book because of the very practical things that the people figured out how to do. I mean, I, in some ways, if there were a yellow pages for mistakes, that's what I want how I built this to be. 
You know, it's like, here's what this person did in this situation, and here's here's how you can avoid it. Because there are no shortcuts in starting a business. The only shortcut is learning the mistakes that other people made that hopefully you can then avoid. But mm-hmm. other than that, there are no shortcuts. It's such a good point. And I have to tell you, Guy, like as you're saying this, so for a while I helped like literally found, it was me and a guy in a basement all the way to growing this nonprofit that's still around today. And I'll never forget, it was my last house. There would be multiple times a week where I would be beyond stressed. You know, the typical stress you, you've you heard over and over again. Uh, a big one was always, are we going to be able to pay people in three or five or seven or 10 days, whatever it was. And I remember there was a path. There's a meandering path that goes through the woods behind my house. And when I would get just completely defeated, one of my favorite things to do, I would go put my headphones in and I would listen to how I built this for the exact thing you talked about, which was it was one of and and still is one of those podcasts where I feel like you do such a good job kind of making me feel, oh, I can solve this too. You know, it's it's one of the most democratizing, if you will, platforms because you do show the humanness of the entrepreneur who, without that context, seems superhuman. It's it it's such a cool kind of um yeah, it's it's a it's a great way to show people that anybody can do it, essentially. I mean that's that's what I'm you know, that's what I I'm trying to do with with this to say to people, look, um everybody you know, right? Every single person you know, everybody has at one point been lying in bed or standing in line at the grocery store or driving somewhere and they see or think of something and they they say to themselves that's a problem somebody needs to fix this like somebody needs to invent something to do x or y now sometimes those ideas are just silly but sometimes those ideas actually solve a real problem and the trick to creating a business is is that very experience it is it is experiencing a problem that you know you have that you believe needs to be solved and that you believe other people have too now it may not be you know the hydrogen bomb that you're inventing which i'm not recommending people do that anyway but it it's it could be an improvement on a, an existing product or service. It could be, you know, uh, I think of uh, of Chet Pipkin, who is is one of the most interesting entrepreneurs I've ever interviewed because he he started out really wanting to make personal computers back in the early '80s. That was his dream, but he didn't have any money. He wasn't going to be able to compete with Compaq and Texas Instruments and all the PC clones that were coming out. Um, he was really smart. But what he also knew was that at that time, if you wanted to connect an Apple computer to an Epson printer, you couldn't easily because the peripheral cables weren't designed to connect from one to the other. At at that time, people would go to Radio Shack and find the peripherals and then attach them to wires and make their own cables. And he was looking at this gold rush of computers and he thought, you know, I, I, I'm better off. I mean, he didn't say this, but 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 he basically what he did was he thought I'm better off selling them, you know, pickaxes and shovels instead of going to the gold mine. So he created Belkin, which is a company that makes peripherals. He, he started out by soldering, you know, wires and and connectors and going to Radio Shack and and then going to universities and they would just buy these cables. Well, now, I mean, anyone listening to this can look at their, you know, in their, at their computer or their iPhone or whatever. It's a good chance they've got a Belkin cable plugging into something in their house. I mean, it's a billion dollar business. So it's, you know, he saw a problem that he had because he had a, you know, computer and printer that couldn't talk. He solved it and then he solved it for everybody else. 
What do you think is the commonality between the people who take the idea and do something about it and those that don't? Because to your point, you said, you know, and I completely agree. Easiest part is the idea, right? And we all see problems that we want to solve. And some of us have even said, maybe I could do that, but it's very few who actually do and even fewer who succeed. What, what is, what do you think is the most common thread there between those that do actually take action? Well, it's, it's hard. It's hard to sort of categorically say, I, I have an answer for it, but I'll just preface it by saying there are all kinds of circumstantial reasons why some people decide to do it and some people don't. Maybe you feel like you're too old to do it, which by the way is not true. The average business um, is started by somebody who's 40 years old. I've interviewed entrepreneurs who started businesses in their late 50s and um, you know, James Dyson, who invented the Dyson vacuum cleaner, was bankrupt and broke at 42. You know, um, He's now one of the richest men in England. I mean, there are all kinds of stories like that. So Part of it is there are natural fears that people have. I think I think really what what differentiates entrepreneurs who go for it and people who don't is is an ability to withstand rejection. It's not that they're fearless. That's a myth. And it's not that they're willing to take insane risks. That's a myth. Most entrepreneurs mitigate their risk. They'll keep their day job. But really what differentiates them is they're not worried about what other people think. They're not worried if people are like, that's a dumb idea. That's that's not going to work. That's stupid. That's silly. I mean, James Dyson worked on his, his Dyson vacuum cleaner for eight years in his backyard shed while his wife taught art classes at the local school and they had three mouths to feed and he had no income, okay? They were really living hand to mouth and people were telling him he was nuts. They were like, give this idea up, you know, okay, it's a vacuum cleaner. And he was like, this is going to be the greatest vacuum cleaner ever. But he was considered to be like a, the mad scientist in the, in the town he lived in. What he had was this ability to withstand that kind of negative feedback, that rejection. He wasn't worried about being judged. And it takes a lot of practice to get to that place. You know, some people have it naturally. Some people don't care what other people think. But other people, it takes time. You know, it takes practice to, to withstand rejection, to, to be able to hear no again and again and again and again and to keep going. One of the interesting things that I've come across in my research is that, you know, if you look at Mormons, and I, I, I mean, Mormons are a good case study. They're only about 2% of the American population, right? But... Um, a, a disproportionately successful and affluent population in America, and also disproportionately high number of entrepreneurs, several of whom have been on my show. David Neeleman of JetBlue is a good example. Well, what is it that Mormons have in common, or many Mormons? And, and, and the official name for the church, I'm just using that as shorthand, is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So I'm, I'm sorry um, if you're listening and I, I haven't used that name. I know Mormon is... Not always the acceptable term, but um, I'll just use it for shorthand. Um, they, when they're 19 years old, they, young people, boys and girls, men and women, have the option, most of them go on it, to do a mission. Okay, so you're 19, you're sent to Brazil, you're sent to Africa, you're sent to France, wherever you are around the world. On your own, you got to pay your own way. And for two years, you got to knock on doors and you're, you're selling the, the, the faith, okay? Most people are slamming that door in your face. You know, you're, you're knocking on a thousand doors a week, 999 of them are slamming in your face. And by the way, you have to walk away from there, gracious, kind, polite, etc. Well, after, after experiencing that, being exposed to that for two years, guess what happens? Those kids go back home to the US or Utah or wherever they live. They're just better equipped at age 21 to take on the world than a lot of kids in America who, who are 21 years old because they've had that experience of of dealing with rejection. I'm not saying you should go join the Mormon church. I'm not personally religious or Mormon, but what I'm saying, is, and, I'm, and that's not the purpose of the church. You know, they're not trying to build entrepreneurs, but it, it's a good case study. I mean, if you think about what it takes to be a salesperson, it's the same kind of thing. You know, you've got to go phone call to phone call, office to office, and pitch a product. And you will often hear no. And, and in, in, invariably, 
Many of the entrepreneurs I've had on the show started out as salespeople. That's how they learned how to withstand rejection. Being able to do that is the key to being able to start a business. I love that, especially because you prefaced it with it's a, it's a skill that can be learned. You, you use the word practice many times. And I think that's an, it's such an important call out. And again, I'm just highlighting my own bias here because I consider myself entrepreneurial and I've started some businesses and things like that. But I've always felt that I lacked in that area of, of being able to deal with rejection, right? So I would say to people, like, if I bring you an idea, don't shoot it down because I'll give up, right? Um, and oftentimes I've looked at that as more of a character flaw or even trait, in which case you just write it off and you say, that's just who I am. But to your point, you would never say that, or, or I don't think you would say that about something like being a salesman. Maybe you would, no. but you know, you'd say, no, you have to practice, you know, uh, but, but that entrepreneurial, um, I think it gets too often. It, it, it is the entrepreneur is the person. It is not the the experience or the progress is all I'm saying. I agree. I agree. I, I think pretty much every trait of an entrepreneur can be learned. I don't believe in this mythology that entrepreneurs are born. You know, my dad was an entrepreneur. My dad, um, you know, he was an engineer. He worked in the defense industry, and then he worked for a freight company for many years. And at the age of 41, he quit and he started a jewelry store selling pearls. He knew nothing about that industry, but he he thought it was an opportunity to own his own company and and um, you know and and employ his own people and make a decent living. And it was very hard, but he did pretty well. You know, he did pretty well. He did okay, um, and he learned how to be an entrepreneur. You know, the person who. You know, your 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 local contractor or handyman is an entrepreneur. Um, I mean, we we don't think about those people as entrepreneurs as often as we should, but that really is what it means to be an entrepreneur. It's somebody who has an Etsy shop or a, a store on Shopify or the corner store. And by the way, a lot of corner stores, right? That just convenience stores that are enterprises, oftentimes owned by by Immigrant Sal Khan's mother in in Metairie, Louisiana, had a convenience store. Okay, he was raised by a single mom who ran a convenience store. Um, oftentimes, those businesses are much much better businesses than uh, you know some of these so called you know Silicon Valley unicorns that don't make a dime. I mean, I, I'd rather make a profit at a small business than than you know run a company valued by people for you know 10 billion dollars but that has never made a dime and is not you know not projected to make any money for the next 20 years that that doesn't make sense to me that's such a great point and it's it's also I know we're out of time here but it's such a cool place to end because you know what you do on your podcast what you do in this book what you do in general we talked about it is that inspiration and I think for those listening probably feeling it and going Wow, I gotta buy the book. I gotta listen to the podcast, which yeah, absolutely do. And we'll talk about the book here in a moment. But you know, I look back to 10 years ago when we started this podcast. And we, you know, actually somebody the other day, I I was talking to them and and they said, Oh, you know, tell me about your business. And I was like, Oh, it's a podcast, it's not really a business. And they were like, Well, I think you're not giving the credit, you know. And and I was like, Well, it's interesting. And the reason I'm saying this is because if 10 years ago, uh, I would have said, oh, I'm going to get to sit down and spend an hour in what I believe just conversation, intimate conversation, like we were talking about early with Guy Raz. I'd be like, that's crazy. Like that's, that's so, you know, it's just a, a cool, it feels like a bow put on it for everyone listening who has that entrepreneurial bent, who, who has the idea and maybe hasn't moved forward or is moving forward, but is getting stuck. You know, it, it's a, it's a, a roadmap. It's a, a companion um, and, and all of that. So this book, How I Built This, The Unexpected Paths to Success from the World's Most Inspiring Entrepreneurs and the accompanying podcast, it's just been you know, something I've enjoyed for so long. It's been an honor to have you on. 
uh, to share this. I'm so glad you put it into book form because it really takes on a, a, a different, just a, a, a different uh, tone in this. And so, Guy, I want to say thank you. And I also wanted to say, you know, what would you like to let our audience know or leave them with as this book comes to air here, uh, as the time people are listening, it'll be out. What do you want them to know about it? I want you to know that this book is really designed to be that cheerleader, that that it's 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 a how to build a business and it's told through stories. And it's designed to be, you know, when you wake up in the middle of the night with anxiety about what you are building or what you're thinking about building or or, 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 or worrying about whether you should give up. I want you to have this book by your bedside, open it up and read it and know that you are hearing me in that book cheering you on and the people in this book cheering you on. And that's that's what I want this to be. Well, I got an advanced copy. You definitely accomplished that goal. Guy, thank you so much for everything that you do and for being on the show. Thanks so much, Chris. Every episode, I'm always just blown away by the people that we get to talk to. And this this episode is no exception. I really hope you enjoyed that interview with Guy Raz. Guy's book, How I Built This, The Unexpected Paths to Success from the World's Most Inspiring Entrepreneurs, is out and available wherever books are sold. Well, it blows me away that it's already September, but let's jump into some housekeeping real quick. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you'd like to support the show, there's no easier way than heading over to the platform where you downloaded the podcast and leaving us a rating or review. And if you'd like to support us monetarily, you can always head over to Patreon at patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. And of course, if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com, and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it from us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of really exciting interviews coming up, and we'll see you all next episode. Next episode.